Here to score it for us is the master of disaster public relations specialist, Mike Paul. Mike Paul, known as the reputation doctor. Well, there's a court of law and there's a court of public opinion. Mike Paul is a crisis PR and reputation management expert. He's all about reputation. Got some tips on rebuilding those reputations. You first have to be transparent and then be accountable for your actions. He's got to get on a truth train right now. There's no ifs or buts in a true apology. You must speak directly to the issues that you've been involved with. You're going to have to have an across-the-board solution that is more than words, and you've got to have actions. Today's guest is Jamie Floyd. She is the senior editor for the Race and Justice Unit at New York Public Radio, which is the flagship station WNYC for National Public Radio. She's also the legal editor for the WNYC newsroom. But you'll also recognize her from her days on Court TV and ABC News. Jamie, it's so great to have you on the show. It's great to be here, Mike Paul. <laughs> Reunited. And it feels so good. <laughs> wow, listen to that voice. That was awesome. We have known each other for many years, and it's so great to have you on the program. The name of the program is Reputations in Crisis. So it's all crisis news all the time. And today's program is about racism in America. You're never going to be out of work, my fall. There's always a reputation in crisis somewhere in America. Yes, and as I like to tell people, it's not just people, uh, it's also brands and organizations, and they're not walls and uh, just logos, they're attitudes and choices and behavioral. Um, so let's talk a bit about something that has moved the world, and as his daughter said, my daddy's going to change the world. Let's start with George Floyd. When I say those two words, what does it mean to you? Well, Floyd is my surname, too. Right? Floyd. That's right. And, you know, I, I wrote a piece on Medium before George Floyd's murder called The Hunting. The Hunting. Wow. Be because, you know, they've been coming for us from jump. This is a... Uh, you know, it's woven into the fabric of who we are as a country, the hunting of black men specifically. Of course, black women are often uh, in the crosshairs as well, but it's really about the black male in America and the white supremacist fear of the power of the black male. And you, we just have to speak honestly about this. Now, when you say these things, a lot of people get very worked up. They get angry. They get exercised. I get hate mail. But I feel, Mike, unless we talk, you always say, speak honestly and openly the truth or else you're not going to move forward to the next phase. You can't That's move right. forward unless you let go of the past. So we have to talk about the past before we can let go of it. So I speak very openly and honestly about these things. And look, I have a white mother. I have a lot of white ancestors. I have ancestors that fought on the wrong side. Can we say it? Yes, the wrong side of the Civil War. Some folks still call it the War of Northern Aggression. Yes, they still do. Um, Confederates. The Confederates. They weren't, my ancestors weren't even with the Confederates, Mike. They thought the Confederates, my ancestors, thought the Confederates weren't radical enough. Wow. They were part of a posse that went out on their own because they felt 
that Robert E. Lee and his folk weren't radical enough, weren't aggressive enough. And so they formed their own little radical movement. So they were a wow. breakout group. Right. So th these are these are my ancestors. But you got to know your truth. My mother yes. wanted to deny all of this for a long time. I was like, no, mama, look, look at our history. That's that side. But then on the black side, a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, a lot of hunting, being hunted yes. down. So that's what Floyd means to me, George Floyd. So when we see that knee on the neck for almost 10 minutes, right? And we knew this before we even get to trial. We knew right. this was a murder. We have to address what is happening in this country. And, and, and I don't know if you've been, Mike, down to the Legacy Museum in Alabama. Not yet. Memorial to lynching. Oh, well, when you go... Uh, it walks you through the history of enslavement and all the way up through to imprisonment and mass incarceration, civil rights movement, all of that. And there are pictures of the lynchings where thousands of people would come to picnic yes. and pass yes. out, you know, uh, beer and and iced tea, lemonade, postcards celebrating a lynching. And so I stood there and I looked in the faces of the white people at those lynchings trying to understand the mentality, the psychology, the reasoning for celebrating the execution of another fellow, a fellow traveler on this planet. And looking in their eyes, what is it that you, what did you see? What, how do you explain that? If your son's asking you that question, what, mom, what did you see? And some of them are children, Mike, in those pictures. Oh, yeah, so that's kind of what I saw. That's what I saw because you see young children in those pictures, five-year-olds, seven-years-old, 10-years-old, standing next to their daddies and mommies, looking at a black man being lynched. And that's what you see. It's taught. It's taught from birth yes. that you are supreme because you are white and hate is part of who you are. It's taught. It's learned. It's a learned racism. So that is what you see, learned hate, learned white supremacy, taught through the generations. And that is what I saw in the eyes of Derek Chauvin. I mean, don't really see because, right. you know, you're not standing right there as some of the witnesses were who had to actually take this in in real time, in real life. But to me, it was the same all over again. It was a modern day lynching. In the George Floyd case, and in many cases that we're seeing today, thank God, we have something that's called smartphone justice. So what, is, what does that mean? Because if we didn't have that tape, we might not have ever known what happened from that viewpoint. Yeah, true, true. But we always knew, Mike. Oh, no, I, I'm talking about proving it now. I'm talking about holding people accountable. You and I, of course, knew that this was going on forever. But if we're trying to get to the point where we're able to change laws and change society, to have evidence that you could see, especially emotional evidence of a killing of a man and all the details of that tape, foot off the ground, weight pressure, all of those things were critical in the verdict that we had. But you know what I say? I say Emmett too. We saw his battered, beaten, brutalized body in a coffin. And still those jurors, they didn't convict. Right. Because they didn't care. Right? We know what happened with with the three young freedom 
fighters who were executed essentially by the Klan and the sheriff who led them astray. We right. know what happened to them. We know what happened to Medgar Evers. We, we, know what ha- we know these stories. We saw what happened to John Lewis on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. I think the will to prosecute has changed. It's slowly, slowly. I mean, ever so slowly. <laughs> ever so. I mean, people were on the edge of their seats when the George Floyd jury was out, still wondering, is he really going to be convicted? I don't know. And he's a police officer on top of it. What I'm saying, Mike, is I do, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think the power of the smartphone is great, but we always had photographs. We always had newspaper photographers, not not as many, but, but we knew, we knew, we knew what was happening. We know more now, but this hunting has gone on for a long time. We knew we didn't want to talk about it. We didn't want to serve justice up as a society. So what's changing, I think, is the culture as much as our knowledge of the truth. I agree with you. And, and, And part of that culture, and I guess it was the point I was trying to make, is you know, it was a difference of only three stations, right? Three major TV stations versus social media. You know, that video, those photos can go all over the world. They could be seen constantly, 24 hours a day, um, which applies more pressure. And that pressure might be influencing the culture and the accountability of those leaders to do something different. You mentioned Medgar Evers. So you also interviewed, and you said it was one of your most memorable interviews, of Merle Evers Williams. Can you tell us about that? And, and if there's one theme that makes you say why it's the best interview, uh, please share that with us. Well, let me just say to you, Mike Paul, uh, that Merle Evers Williams was one of the first interviews of my broadcast journalism career. Way, really? way back. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, it was uh, one of the first stories I ever did. It was um, back when Byron D. LeBeckwith was being tried again for the assassination, the murder of Medgar Evers. He'd been tried before by an all-white jury back in the 60s, the murder having happened in 1963. And now here we were in the 90s. And I left law to come be a broadcast journalist. And one of the earliest stories I did, one of the first stories I pitched, the first feature, long feature that I pitched, was covering this and doing it in feature form where you sit down and you string together the whole story of what happened then, what's happening now, and you go into the courtroom and all that business. And in order to get the story done, my boss said, well, you can do it. You can go on down there. You can do it, but you got to get all the players, all the players. I want to, I want the prosecutor. I want Merle Evers Williams. I want them all. So we went on down and she was so gracious. To, to not only give me a nobody, I, I was up from nothing. You know, who was I? This long, involved, and rather painful interview because she walked us through what happened the night of the assassination. Yes. The details at, it, in her memory as if it had just happened yesterday. And, of course, talked about her carrying on her husband's mission. But she gave me so much time. And the connection, the grace, the... The the so down to earth, but yet comported herself with so much dignity. If you 
seen her, of course, you know, Mike. And I just thought, this is the woman I want to grow up to be. Yes. And I've just followed her career ever since. You know, I've met her one or two times since, but never had the chance to sit down with her again in that way. But I've not had, a, I mean, I've had so many wonderful interviews. I'm grateful to so many people, but that has stayed with me ever since as my my most cherished interview and moment. Um, because this woman, you know, she, she's one of the lights of the civil rights movement. And people don't know that together with Medgar Evers, they were a team, you know, they did that work together. They were registering people to vote in the early 1960s right. in the deep South Mississippi and both taking a huge chance with their lives, their liberty, their their family, their children. They had three babies, three young children. They would drill the children. Now run to the bathroom and climb in whenever you hear gunshots or you know bomb threat. And these kiddies would run up and hide in the bathtub. And their father was assassinated in their driveway in the home that is now an historic landmark. And one of the things that Mrs. Evers said at the time is that we had practiced several things. If a gunshot ever went off near our house, our neighbor was told to also shoot a gun that hoped that another shot wouldn't fire and it would not affect the children or me that you don't get out of a car on the left side because there were shrubs and trees on that side and no one would see it. But he was so tired that night and there are other circumstances that he broke some of the rules, his own rules. Right, right. Well, and, you know, how could you not night after night, at night sure. after night? And he did die in that driveway. I stood in that driveway and it's a, a tiny little, very modest house down south, very much what you'd expect a civil rights worker and his family to have just trying to do the work before we really thought about this as a big movement. Um, and, you know, everybody talks about how Emmett Till's death and his courageous mother's decision to open that casket and let us see, let the world see what's happening down there, because she was in Chicago down there. Uh, but but also Medgar's death, those two really were the beginning of, of the national movement, because that's when people started to realize, oh, my, we have got to we have got to get our country back on track. What's happened? What, what, we're not living up to the principles of our founding documents at all. 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, yes. just letters on a page. And so, so anyway, let's trans yes, Merle Evers, Merle Evers Williams, uh, so grateful to that woman, not just for the interview, but for her work, her life's work and her sacrifice yeah. and her family's sacrifice. So let's transition to another big racism in America moment, sadly. Uh, a lot of it's being told now, this year, with a deeper understanding, which is Greenwood, Tulsa. Some people called it a Tulsa riot. Why is it more correct to call it the Tulsa massacre? Right, right. Riot is a criminal term. That's a law, uh, you know, a, a term from criminal law. Riot meaning uh, specifically that you engaged in uh, criminal activity that is unlawful. And it's often been called the Tulsa riot, suggesting that black people in right. Tulsa and Greenwood did something wrong that night. They rioted and then, you know, white law enforcement had to respond. Uh, if anyone rioted, it wasn't the black people, 
<laughs> it was the white folks in Tulsa who came on in there and caused a riot. But really, it's more correct to call it a massacre. And it, it's I don't know if you knew this, Mike, but I'm glad you asked about it. We have just dropped our podcast. Uh, I'm one of the producers on the podcast. Uh, it's called Blind Spot, Tulsa Burning, and it's in partnership with the History Project. So we're looking back, but also looking forward at what, what we call the blind spots that allowed something like this to happen in history. We had a previous project called Blind Spot, and it was a, the road to 9-11. How did that happen? So it's right. an ongoing series in partnership with history. But with Tulsa, how was it in this vibrant and, by the way, Mike, multicultural part of the country, Native Americans, African Americans, and also Jewish people coming through all the time to visit right. and trade, as well as white Tulsans living in this part of the country at a time when the country was changing. We're now post, uh, kind of post-Reconstruction. We're just in the post-Reconstruction era. Moving forward, one would hope toward realizing some of our values as a democracy, and then all of a sudden, whiplash, backlash, massacre and we're talking you know the estimates then were 36 people died but now the estimates are wait a minute maybe a couple hundred people and that's right everything burned to the ground everything businesses homes everybody pushed out and now approximately 13 block area correct 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 and and a thriving uh vibrant uh, beautiful community, what we wanted for people when we said, oh, here's your 40 acres and a mule. We wanted this, you know, as Du Bois said, uh, the, the slave was freed, turned toward the sun, and then uh, almost in an instant, turned back again towards slavery. I mean, I'm paraphrasing because Du Bois is a better yes. writer than I am, but basically he's saying we gave black people their opportunity and then we shut it down and shove black people back toward enslavement that's basically what he's saying and this is what happened with uh black wall street in tulsa this is what happened in rosewood east st louis i mean you can go on there were a number of these essentially pogroms the word they use in europe happened right here in the united states when white people became afraid that black people were going to take too much of the pie the pie's only so big, you're taking some of my pie. <laughs> I want some of that pie back. <laughs> and some of it was also the same insecurity we see uh, now as uh, white men begin to feel, well, wait a minute, what, what, what's my meaning? What's my pur purpose? What does it say about me uh, if, if these uh, other people, whoever they are, right? Latinos, uh, uh, black men, uh, trans people, Asian hate, right. Who are these people who are challenging my supremacy in the society? And so that's, a, it's the same thing that happened 100 years ago this week in Tulsa. As we talk about these amazing civil rights, historical examples of not only trauma and atrocity, but also examples of answering questions we still have to answer today, like can't find any. We're not sure you're able to perform this task or lead. And you see these examples, some of them more than a hundred years old. Owners of industry, self-made entrepreneurs. I, mean, I can go on and on. 
So as we take it full circle now, let's talk about another racism in America moment that happened very recently. The riot on the Capitol in Washington, D.C. And talk a bit and summarize for me the insurrection. Who are these people? We're still trying to put our hands around it. Can you imagine now? There were one or two black people in the group. I looked at the group and I was thinking, who are you? What are you doing in that group? But there were a few black people. But can you imagine? If a few hundred black folks tried to jump the wall <laughs> and insurrect themselves, I know that's not a word, but it just sounds good. You know, have an insurrection, a bunch of black folks rioting on the Capitol. I mean, I'm sorry. I don't want to be race crazy, but really? No I've been. Way. I've been in marches in Washington. I've been there when all black men came to Washington. I've been there when we, 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 we marched for more common day, later day civil rights issues. But we knew if we did that, we're not concerned about going to jail. We're, we're, we would be concerned about being killed. Right, exactly. They start moving that quickly before you ever make it up the stairs, before you break down a a makeshift fence of three feet? Gunshots. We did a story in at WMIC about precisely that. And I don't think we've dug deeply enough. And we're not in Washington. It's not really our, uh, our beat. Our beat is here in New York. But we did try to dig into why exactly did the police not respond a little more aggressively here? <laughs> How much alliance is there in police departments, NYPD and elsewhere, between these insurrectionists and the police departments and white supremacy or at least uh, far right uh, attitudes? Uh, you know, were, were they complicit in some way? You know, all those questions we asked on January 7th. And then the whole thing kind of, and now we've had the hearings about it and, or should we have hearings about it? Of course we should have hearings about, you know, how seriously are we taking this? And who are these people? And, and then there are people who say, well, this is just democracy. This is how the revolution was fought after all. Well, are they modern day KKK members? Are they under a different name? What's your opinion based on the research to date? Who are these people? You can call them proud boys. You can call them whatever you want. Is it modern day KKK? Right. Well, um, it's not. I have it. It's not my story, honestly. But to the extent I have followed it, uh, I don't think it was that as well organized as that. Um, I think there were elements of, certainly Proud Boys were there. Uh, the Proud Boys say we're not KKK, and they also say they're not white supremacists. But of course, if you then dig deeply into their literature and their activities, you know, you could, right. say, you, you could say you're not white supremacists, but, um, you know, if it, if it walks like a duck, et cetera. Um, but the group that assembled at the Capitol, remember, came from down the way at Donald Trump's rally. That's right. So I don't think there's been any evidence that this was a pre-organized event, or at least that the whole of the group had been pre-organized. There may have been some element of it that had decided in advance, say January 3rd, we're going to this rally and then we're going to take the Capitol. 
But I think the group that ultimately went to the Capitol was larger than any pre-organized group. That's my sense. Well, Were there part of it... members there? Perhaps. Are they white supremacists? I think so. Um, what does it say about America? I think, Mike, we've always had a, a fair... Um, uh, a fair segment of our society that believes some, you know, hardcore right-wing white supremacist things. And I'm going to say, I'm a first amendment. I believe in the first amendment. You have a right to believe and maybe even say some crazy things over there on the far right and way over here on the far left. And guess what? Sometimes they come pretty close together. But action is something completely different. Action, yes. that we can regulate. We can regulate action. Once you're going to endanger others or cause, you know, as they say, you call cry fire in a crowded building, that famous case from the U.S. Supreme Court, you can't do that. You can't do that. So right. this was way out of bounds, way out of bounds. Well, one of the things that's going to happen as you talk about Trump and what happened during that time and even activities that happened at that hotel that he's now trying to get rid of, uh, we're proud to say here at Reputations in Crisis that we're going to be covering court trials too. And two of the big ones are going to be related to Giuliani and Trump, and they're right here in our backyard in New York, so it'll be easy for us to go and cover it. So every week, I pick a t-shirt to wear, and sometimes it's an icon, or sometimes it's an issue, and people are now sending me t-shirts, and to transition, now we're going to talk about Black Lives Matter, and I'd like for you to talk about two sides of this. One is the movement overall, and what is it, and then also... An organization started by two women, and one of them is in trouble, and one of them recently stepped down. And the reason why I think it's important to mention that is because we know historically Jesse Jackson's organization has had some questions, uh, Al Sharpton's organization has had some issues, and in my profession, in addition to now doing more journalism, I still do crisis counseling for organizations like that. And when you start getting money and when you have the world's eyeballs on you, sometimes you don't make the right decisions. But let's start with first, why is there a need for BLM? How is that different than the Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton organizations? And where are we today in that movement? Right, right. You know, it's interesting. I wanted to say, and this segues perfectly to Black Lives Matter, when you brought up the insurrection, I think we're at a critical moment in American history that grows out of the Obama presidency. So I remember going to the Obama inauguration. I remember all the celebration. My son had a giant Afro, big, beautiful Afro, curly hair, and he shaved it off in solidarity with Barack Obama. Oh, mom, I'm so excited. He was eight. I'm wow. So oh, maybe he was six. I don't remember. He was very young. And he, I didn't want him to shave that afro, but he shaved it all off because Barack Obama was president. I was going to look like my president. Off we went and everybody was jubilant. And anybody with any forethought, black, white, historic, you know, anybody would have seen where it was going. While they were dancing in the streets, 
Other people were not dancing on the street. The whole what lot were they of people doing? were unhappy that a black man was about to be telling the country what to do for four to eight years, including a bunch of people on Capitol Hill who were obstructionists for four to eight years, for eight years. He got right. nothing done for a bunch of that time. He got some stuff done, but he didn't get a lot of stuff done. I will put out there just because he was black. Getting too big for your britches, you black people. I really believe it. And once he left office and he comported himself with so much dignity, no scandal. No scandal. Oh, my God. I worked. Not in their eyes, though. Scandal Not in their eyes, though. Oh, what was what was the scandal? He wore a tan suit one day. That was the scandal. He wore dad jeans. I mean, really, what was the scandal? There was no scandal. That was a clean White House. OK, so he leaves. And then what do we start to see? Incredible backlash against essentially his presidency. The white it was the white lash or the black lash, whatever you want to call it, we get the backlash and we get Donald Trump. Isn't that similar to what we have here in New York City, Jamie? You work for a station and you've, and you've lived in New York for so long. We had a black mayor. We flipped from a minority to a minority majority city in the 90s. What's happened since? Absolutely, look at the way Giuliani ran against Dinkins. Look at that hateful protest the police had down at City Hall against Mayor Dinkins. It's a very similar dynamic, and Trump's a part of all of it. He was a yes. part of the New York City thing, the Central Park Five thing. He runs for president. He learned. Kenyan, he learned, and he made it national. The Kenyan birth certificate business, et cetera. And I think what we're having now is essentially a small Rahoa race war. Not big Rahoa yet, but a small one happening all across the country because we had a black president and people can't get over it. And so, listen, I say, bring it out in the open. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about your issues with the black president. Let's talk about your issues with your black neighbor. Let's talk about your issues with your black son-in-law. Let's talk about it. Let's talk honestly about how you really feel about black people and not just people who are on the far right. I want to talk to white liberals who say they're liberal but then don't do liberal. They say they're liberal, but then when it's time to hire someone into a job, they don't actually wanna make that hire. They don't actually wanna move over to make room for someone else to share the job market, the workspace, but Jamie, the pie. And I have children now. When we come from mixed families, but we teach our in-laws and, and white family members the one drop rule and they go, is that kind of denying the other half? No, it's accurately telling you what the world still thinks. There's a difference. And to be prepared for what that means, right? My son's already had a racial situation, sadly, on a playground at age three. Had to have a conversation. I knew it was coming, right? So what do we say? It's so heartbreaking. What do we say? I, I tell my white, powerful friends on the West Coast who married Asian women. Wow, Mike, it's horrible that that happened to William. I said, your daughter's gonna get called chick. Oh my gosh, why would you say that? I'm trying to wake you up. Hadn't happened yet? Right, right, and, and here's the thing. I had the same thing with my children. So I, when I was, you know, in my 30s, I guess my kids were born when I was in my 30s. So when I was in my 20s, I had this fervent hope 
that that the horrible and I mean a horrible Mike things that happened to me when I was a child would not happen to my children. I mean, I'm so light skinned when I have an Afro, I obviously am black, but I just assumed by the time I had children, things would have changed. But you were right. You were right, Mike. By the time my daughter was, I would say five and she had her first racial incident. However, I was ready. I was ready and we therefore had our, we spoke to both of our children. And so when they ran into these things, it wasn't a shock. There was no shock and awe. It's much better to prepare yourself and your children for the reality that's coming than to try and be Pollyannish about it. And then they're devastated and you're devastated. My parents prepared me. And I used to say, oh, please stop talking about this race thing. I don't want to hear about the race thing all the time. But I was grateful. I was grateful because then when it happened, I was ready. I was ready with my, I, my armor was ready and my words were ready. I was ready. And getting back to the, what, the Black Lives Matter, the, the reason we're having this conversation, I didn't forget your question. Um, you know, because when you're up in front of the Supreme Court justices, you better get back to the question they ask. That phrase, people don't understand. People always say, oh, well, you know, they, they bring up, they always bring up Eric Garner. Eric Garner is the place where people think it started. I can't um, breathe. They think it's I can't breathe, but it, that was right around the same time, but it was Trayvon. It was yes. Trayvon Martin. The two women were watching the Trayvon story unfold. He was a boy, a child. He was tall, but he was a child. That's and right. And they were on Facebook as friends. And the one woman said to the other woman, hashtag Black Lives Matter. And he was a baby. And, you know, I had a son at the time who was about the same age as Trayvon. And I, I remember thinking, oh, my God, she's so right. Black Lives Matter. And what she was saying is, Black lives don't matter. Why can't people see our children as valuable too, as right. meaning something too? Why did this man shoot this young boy? Had he been white, he probably would not have fired first. This wouldn't have happened is what she was saying. And obviously we all know, I don't have to run through the controversy. We know all lives matter, blue lives matter. <laughs> the whole controversy about, are you saying black lives matter more than other lives? But what they were just, it was a conversation between two friends where they were in pain. And the one was saying to the other, oh my goodness, it's 2012. I think it was 2012, might've been 2013, 2012. And still, our lives don't matter. Black lives do matter. That's what That's they were right. saying. And then it took off. They weren't trying to start an organization. It wasn't like SCLC or, you know, the Black Panthers, where they actually sat down and said, let's start this organization because we have something we need to do. They were just friends having a dialogue. And with social media, as we started this conversation, it just took off. It just took off. And... Here they are now with a real thing on their hands, a movement and an organization <laughs> right, <laughs> that right. neither of them really planned. But, you know, sometimes the times make the woman as opposed to the woman making the times. Right. That's what happened to them. Um, and, Mike, I can't answer your question about the organization. You are the reputation doctor. I am just a journalist and a lawyer. Um, but I do think sometimes what happens is. Um, you know, organizations become big. They have a lot of money. They have a lot of people uh, involved. And this one's even more complicated because they wanted it to be grassroots, not just in name, like all these other, you know, all these organizations say, well, we're grassroots. 
Raymond right. Bush were grassroots. You know, they're all grassroots, but they this one really is grassroots. They farmed it out. You know, there's Black Lives Matter everywhere. Well, the issue is corporations, corporations, other nonprofits. Uh, when you have a brand that is associated with civil rights in 2021 for the world and many people, not all, respect, then you have to decide what you want to be. When corporations call and say, we'll give you 50 grand, we'll give you 100 grand, we want to be associated with you, with you for the next three or four years, do you buy a house <laughs> or do you help families, right? That's, that's your choice. Are you putting it back in? Or do you take um, the money at all? Well, exactly. Um, uh, those are difficult decisions to have to grapple with, in my opinion, in my experience, when you've never done that before. You know, money corrupts. When you see those dollars and you've never had it before and you started, as you say, grassroots, and you started really with nothing, and suddenly it's real money, hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars over years coming in now, that can corrupt you. That could change you. Um, and it and takes sophistication to, to know how to segregate the money that's coming in to Black Lives Matter from the money that's coming in from your book and your speaking engagements, which might also be connected to Black Lives Matter, right? That's right. And then your own income. So that's complicated business for anyone. Um, the question, you know, about whether we still need Black Lives Matter. I say yes. I think we're yes. still in a place where uh, a lot of folks and law enforcement in particular do not see black lives as valuable, do not see black people as the same. I just interviewed two police officers, police officers, black and brown police officers who said they are told in the precinct to go out and and, you know, stop and frisk, which you're not supposed to be doing anymore unless you have a reason to stop. But they are told, go out there and stop and frisk black and brown men. Just do keep it. Keep that quota. We got to keep our numbers up. Keep that quote up. And one of the two officers said they see us as animals. They see us, he said, us, meaning us, brown people, as animals. They, the police, which he is, of which he is one, see us, black and brown people, as animals. That's, that goes all the way back to slavery day. So, yes, we That's need right. Black Lives Matter because right now we don't. Well, it also is a huge problem for the police unions or, or an advantage from their point of view to be able to live in the suburbs, not live in the communities in which you work, have no relation either through race or culture or financial or anything with the people that you're told. Why would you not say, hunt you? That's what you think. That's what you've been taught. That's what the brotherhood has made you believe. And I do want to say, Mike, when I was a kid, the cop in my neighborhood, Walter, he lived in my building. White guy. I think he was Polish. He lived in my building. Nice guy. Walked, walked the beat. You know, walked the beat. I mean, literally walking around. So well, it's, it's a big deal. You know, police are not a monolith. We don't want That's to say right. all, you know, I'm not, I'm not an ACAB person. All cops are bad. I'm not into that. It's a cultural issue. So I'm sorry. I just wanted to please put that out there because I don't, I do not no, subscribe that's to that. And, and that's important. You know, my brother's a retired state trooper, highly decorated, uh, you know, drug task force with the state and federal government. You know, bless his heart, he's retired now. Um, 
We have children. We're talking about racism in America. When I'm asked, do I expect some of the change that I've been talking about tied to the data and the studies and what is the best practice approach to fully happen in my lifetime? The answer is sadly no. So then the question is, for our children, yours being older than mine, my youngest being four, what would your dream, realistic, concrete, possible solutions for racism in America, give me two or three to close us out. Four is a fabulous age. Oh my God. Three and four, my favorite ages. <sighs> Fill, filled with innocence, but not, not enough because he had his first incident on the playground. Well, you know, it's not all about legislation, as we sadly learned after the That's brilliance right. of 64 and the you know, Civil Rights Act 65 and the Voting Rights Act, Housing Rights Act in 68, I mean, all so critically important. So people who say it's not important, that's wrong because we need those laws. Um, and we have to fight to keep those laws on the books because people are actively trying to unravel that legislation and undo President Johnson, President Kennedy, trying to undo that work uh, and the work really of Dr. King and, and others, uh, John Lewis, God rest his soul. Uh, so that's important, but it's not enough. You can't change hearts and minds with legislation. And you can't do it with Supreme Court jurisprudence either, but you still have to fight to keep those cases alive. So I believe in the courts. I believe in the law. But mostly it's about culture. I mean, look at what happened with gay rights. Overnight, right? Now, they would say, no, not overnight. Over centuries <laughs> they say we have to go right, back to ancient right. rome but look at what happened when the culture started to change television movies the ways in which gay and lesbian lgbtqi we now say were portrayed in media and then ideas and hearts and minds were changed but more importantly i think when we know someone who is gay we think differently justice kennedy being a prime example he had a very good friend former roommate who was gay. And so he became the leader on the court in right. cases that changed, at least I was going to say the world, but at least our country for LGBTQ people. This is what needs to happen, I think, for us as African-Americans and for the country in terms of race. I think, Mike, I'll finish by saying, when you look at the census, the fastest changing population, when you check the boxes, when it says, you know, it used to just be black, white, Native American, other. Those were your choices. When I was a kid, that was it. That's right. Now, the biggest, fastest growing uh, population is multiracial. Right. More people check more than one box than anything else. Rapidly changing. And as we intermarry and live amongst one another, we become more and more comfortable with people who do not look like us. And, you know, people will say, well, you're, you're, you're not the black people I'm talking about, Mike. I'm not talking about you. <laughs> I'm sure you've had that, right? I've had that. Yes. I'm not talking about you. I'm sorry. I, oh, wait, I wasn't talking about you. Okay, that's bad when people say that. That's racist. But it is true that as people know more and more people who are not like them, the culture changes. And then you, you have people living the promise of, uh, Brown versus board. You have people living the promise of the Housing Rights Act because they stop discriminating, right? And you don't have to bring in troops to enforce things or lawyers to file a lawsuit. 
It takes a lot of time to stop racist incidents on the playground. But if we call them out incident by incident, it will change. It's painful for us. We have to do the work. It's the burden of being black. I live that burden. I know you live it too. Uh, most of us choose to live it. Some of us do not. But I think over time, we make the change that we want to see in the world. So one of the solutions then could be if you're white and you're asking people like you and I, what can I do differently? Meet a new friend who's different than you. And if you become close enough friends with that person, allow them to also meet your family and you meet their family and it will influence you like the Green Book, the movie, and so many other examples that we know to change who you are culturally and this show's all about heart, changing that heart. So when you're in a meeting and someone does the wrong things, don't say that. Oh man, come on, you must notice people like that. Don't do that around me. Right, really lean into the relationships too, not just, not just at work near the coffee machine. When, when we get back to that comment, <laughs> I mean, really lean into your friendships with people who are not like you. And we could all do it. I mean, I'm sure there are lots of folks I need to be getting to know better. I'll give you a quick example of that. So a colleague who said I was his friend told me that we were close friends. And at a Yankee game in his box, I felt I had to push back at risk of him going, we're sitting here in my box of taking you. I said, we're colleagues. I'd like to be your friend. What's your definition of friendship? What's my lady's name? What's my kids' names? Where do I live? What do I like to do when I'm not working? Can't answer half of those questions. You don't know me. We're colleagues. We go to dinners and a ball game occasionally, but you don't really know me. I'd like to know you, and it changed our relationship. He was hurt at first, and I said, that's, that's who I am, man. I mean, I want to get to know you. I said, I'll give you an example. I drive an hour and a half from where I live, one town away from where you live, and I've told you that story. Made him feel bad. And I said, I can't imagine you telling me twice a week because of a child in your family, you're driving back and forth, and me not saying, well, anytime you need to stop by or even just use the bathroom or want a glass of water, you're welcome anytime. I mean, I know that trip, it's like a three-hour turnaround. I'll make sure I remember that. That's the kind of example, if we're going to be friends, you got to have that kind of relationship and not just collegiality, which is a total different thing. Jamie, thank you so much for your time. Oh, Mike, it's so good to see you. Can we close out by you telling us what you're currently working on and something about what you're doing in your current position? Well, we have the Tulsa podcast, which I mentioned, Blind Spot, Tulsa Burning, wherever you get your podcast. I'm also getting ready to drop tomorrow something called 24 Minutes in Mott Haven, which is all about a protest that happened in Mott Haven a year ago uh, that went really south. 
mostly for the NYPD, the uh, Human Rights Watch called out NYPD for the way they treated the protesters there. And we're using it as an examination of uh, how policing in black and brown neighborhoods, communities can be reformed. Wow. Um, interviewing Dermot Che about it next week, Commissioner Dermot Che. Uh, and then I'm also working on a really interesting podcast about a black man who passed as white after having been militantly black for a lot of years. He was the uh, owner of the first black record label in America. More to come on that. Lots wow. to find. Uh, check it out on Gothamist uh, or uh, check me out at Twitter. That's where I post most stuff at Jamie Floyd. Thank you so much, Jamie. I appreciate your time. Good to see you, my friend. Hug your family for me. Good to see you. And we'll, we'll continue to try and have less head work and more heart work. Absolutely, my friend. And I'd love to come back anytime you want to talk about good stuff. Oh, we, we look forward to having you. Thanks so much. Important conversations. Thanks for doing it, Mike. Jamie Floyd, what an amazing guest she was today. We covered so many different topics under the theme of racism in America. But what I love about Jamie is she's not just an attorney. She's also a White House fellow. She's also a top journalist, anchor, and editor. But she's also a mom. And that perspective is a big deal in everything she does. I know since I became a father, it impacts every type of counsel I give, not just myself, my clients, those that are listening to this show. And we also had a bond in not just being parents, we also had a bond in being mixed race Americans. But there's something that we also haven't forgotten. There's still a one drop rule in America and if you have one drop of blood that is black, you are considered black in America. That's not to push away your other ethnicities and races that might make up your entire person and soul of who you are as a human being. It's to be honest about where we stand still in America and to be honest about where we see our children being not just in their generation, but sadly, generations to come in America. Recognize not just who you are, but what others think of you. This is Reputations in Crisis with Mike Paul, the Reputation Doctor, the show. And please watch us on YouTube, on the Reputations in Crisis channel, and also in audio version, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. We'll see you next week with another episode. And remember, less head work, more hard work. Peace.